LiveFlow is known for saving accountants time. Hours, days, even weeks for some. Well, LiveFlow has done it again, saving accountants even more time with their new feature, Automated Multi-Entity Consolidation. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. It's not just financial modeling, because it's really it's strategic finance. That's the way I like to think about it. And maybe I'm just adding fancy words to something that's simple, but I really think, I, I do believe it. Because it's not just putting numbers on a sheet. Because when you just put, put numbers on a sheet, you'll do what I did at the beginning of my career, which is hand over the model, and they say, why am I making a billion dollars a month? That makes no sense. And I'm like, well, that's the formula. And they're like, well, you have to do the sense check. You know, you can't yeah. just like be a monkey with the numbers. You got to really think about what you're doing. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver, CPA, talking today with Ariel Mensch. Ariel, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ariel, you are a strategic finance advisor at Roftel Strategy, and the way that we, I guess, got in touch is is you were working at DemoStack with my buddy David Wiesenek. Is that right? Yeah, uh, still in. Um, Still am, uh, okay. one of my clients. Yeah, so Reftel Strategy is my uh, consulting firm. I do financial and advisory for a number of companies, um, usually focused around transactions, you know, helping companies who want to eventually raise, do a capital raise, whether it's a series A, B, C, whatever it is, debt raise, or eventually exit M&A or IPO. And, you know, there's a lot of different people involved with those transactions. So, you have your bankers, you have your investors, and no one's really there working for the founder or the founder's team and the CFO trying to help them, guide them towards that transaction. So that's our focus. And it's not only that, but you know, we also go into companies and help build out financial models and you know, sometimes part, uh, like part-time or outsource uh, finance teams. Not like a CFO that does purely accounting, but think of it forth forward-looking financial models, um, strategic KPIs, and how to think strategic. Uh, finance today is really a mix between strategy and uh, the numbers. So trying to take all that together. So working with uh, DemoStack today also. Well, yeah, it was great talking with David. Uh, if you have not, dear listener, heard that interview, go back to the episode called Scaling Startup Finance with David Wiesenek, and we talk all about his approach as, a, as an accountant, a controller who then became head of finance at a startup. And he recommended that we talk to you, Ariel. So I'm eager to hear your insights into you know, FP&A and, and more on the finance side of things and, and building models. And you have such a really interesting LinkedIn profile. Like, and the one, that <laughs> stuck out, the one that stuck out to me, the experience that stuck out to me is your time at WWE. You know, the, yeah. what used to be the World Wrestling Federation when I was growing up, now WWE, um, doing financial planning and analysis. And I, I'd love to hear, you know, a bit about like how you got there. Like, what was your background? Were you an accounting major in school? How did you end up doing FP&A for pro wrestling? Yeah, um, yeah. first of all, I lo- yeah, I lo- I'm actually a big fan of WWE, of the show. And then being able to work there was a really amazing experience. I started out in college, I did a double major of business and art history. 
Um, actually, the way I usually say it is accounting and art history. And the reason I chose them is the first two on the list. But the truth is I did a master's as an undergrad. So I did my 150 hours at, during my undergrad. So only had an extra summer and got the pretty much already for the CPA and also art history degree, which was, it's great for conversation starters. <laughs> and then moved oh, yeah. to uh, K- KPMG where I did strategy consulting. Uh, did one project, you know, with uh, an accounting advisory team so I could get an accounting partner to sign off on um, on the accounting side of things and got the CPA. So art history, uh, you have like a favorite uh, artist, favorite, you know, period type of like, what, what was, did you do a thesis? You know, what, what's your, yeah, actually it's, it's pretty funny. I came in really liking surrealism. So like Salvador Dali uh-huh. ended up focusing on architecture in the Islamic world, looking at just development of art and architecture in the Islamic world, really a focus on buildings everywhere. And that was, I love that. But for my honors thesis, which I ended up never, not doing because I was doing the masters in accounting and it just would have been too much. I wanted to do the development of comic book art and how like the covers of Batman comics reflected the different aesthetics, different different decades, you know, starting out like with uh, the golden age, silver age, and eventually like the eighties grungy Batman. That was that was the the dream. Oh yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. It's you know it's funny too. Like uh, growing up, I feel like the world has changed a lot because um, you know when we were kids, comic books and anime and and all that stuff was sort of like a I don't know, not the mainstream culture, right? And now here we right. are. In a world in which that's all like totally mainstream now and normal, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, actually you mentioned anime and that's part of my journey into WWE. Really? So, well, <laughs> yeah. So I'm a, a avid anime watcher. And uh, one of the really cool things that anime is unique is that it's long form storytelling. You're watching these characters develop over actually a number of years um, and so you're, you're really into the characters and their storylines. And there's only one other form of entertainment that really goes into long-form storytelling that's also centered around fights. And that's professional wrestling. Uh, and so when you have an uh, audience's professional wrestling, there's usually a big overlap with anime because you're watching these people develop relationships, break off these relationships. And so everything's focused around fights. Um, right. With professional wrestling, that's unique, though, even more than anime, is that it's happening in real time. So when these group of, uh, in this like squad of, you know, three guys or who are you know, fighting together for three years and then they break up and then five years later, they meet each other in the ring. And are they going to be friends? Are they going to be enemies? What happened? Well, you were there eight years ago when they formed. And you were there five years ago when they broke up. And you were with them in their individual journeys for the last few years. And that's real time in your life that you spent dedicated watching these guys and developing them. It's a very strong parasocial relationship that you have. Um, And the payoff is just, the emotional payoff is amazing. I think that's the thing that people outside of these subcultures don't see is that they just see the fights. But what it's really about is the relationships and the interactions between the different characters. And Yes, exactly. the, The long drama that it's... It's very intricate and drawn out, and you have to know the history to really enjoy it. Exactly. And so, you know, when uh, you're a new fan, and you're, and I say new fan, you could be watching it for three, five years, and then someone comes on stage and everyone's freaking out. You have to, like, do all these Wikipedia searches to see what the relationships were beforehand. <laughs> it's a lot easier um, these days. You can just go on, on the wiki and look it up, right? <laughs> 
Yes, that's true. You could do that. So definitely helpful. But to how I got to WWE is actually when I was at KPMG, one of the projects I, I did was actually for the, F, the FP&A team at WWE. And I wasn't poached or anything, but I that was like kind of when it came up as like, oh, wait, WWE is a company that people you know could work for. So it was on the radar. And about a year and a bit after that, I was looking to change directions. I was doing strategy consulting for a number of years. Um, most of the time on projects, I was put on more like a financial modeling side of things. I was like an Excel guy, you know, my bread and butter. And mm-hmm. um, I wanted to you know, go into finance. I thought that was an interesting direction to go. And then there happened to be an open role at WWE. It was very fortuitous. And um, I was able to join the team. And at WWE, I managed Steph- Stephanie McMahon's budgets. So Stephanie McMahon is the, what, the head of She WWE. was the chief brand officer at the time, actually. She just okay. recently resigned. So that meant everything with to do with marketing, brand, also community relations. So anything that uh, they do give a lot back to the community, which was really um, cool for me to experience that side of the business as well. Um, yeah, they so also like, had like a, a network. I'm sorry, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I mean... Um... I don't mean to derail you, but I'm I'm really curious about like what are you, like what's what are you modeling out, you know, for WWE? Like, what do those financial models look like? What's important? What's uh, you know, what, what's everybody? Yeah, so there's, it's a number of things. So it, it's interesting to think about like the CFO's role and how their different responsibilities look, and then how that's actually changed over time. So I would say like the traditional CFO has like three hats: you have the treasury, you have accounting, and finance. So, you know, treasury is taking care of the pay, everything to do with cash. Accounting is making sure everything is reconciled. And then finance was really how do we, what do we expect to spend? It's all forward looking. But as I think data has become more accessible and we're able to manage more and more of it, the finance role has expanded to become more strategic. And it's not just about you know, forecasting the expenses, but also thinking strategically about what KPIs to be measuring, how to think about where to invest in the company. And so finance kind of grew to be this, like almost like a nucleus of the company where it's working with all the different operators. And it's, it's almost like a, a service, you know, you're working, you have clients within the company. So, you know, working with the accountants, working with the marketing team, working with data analytics, making sure they all you know, have the support they need to, you know, the KPIs to measure that they're succeeding and what they want to do, make sure that they understand how much funds they need to succeed or you know, how, much, how much funds they have left. And what I found was in the old, you know, legacy FP&A practices, a lot of times what you're doing is you're, it was acting as like a, almost an op, a broker, not a broker. I think the term would be like a, um, Middleman living in yeah middleman I guess I, uh, living in Israel now so like all the I, I can't speak Hebrew but then I can't speak English either so you lose all the <laughs> what, what's mediator, the word in Hebrew I think it's actually my last name it's <laughs> in Hebrew my last name is uh, Mincha or Menache and it's the same word but it's like a same it's word. a moderator a <laughs> yeah. moderator there we go yeah yeah it's like a and trying to like. So marketing would say, uh, say, okay, here are your actuals that came in. And they were like, I, I didn't spend that. That travel and expense thing, that's way too high. I didn't spend anything near that. So I spent, when I first joined the company, it was like 20 days of the month was trying to reconcile all the actuals from the previous month. It was a limited accounting team. And then every single team of the company had a different data set. So just for one example, you know, HR had one 
set saying who's belonging to what a department. The accounting had a different set. The travel team had a di- had five different sets depending on whether or not they were using an Uber or a plane. And so I spe- I realized this and I was like, I can't, I don't want to be spending my time doing non-value add activities. Let's streamline, let's get to the bottom of this problem. And what we did was we created single source, sources of truth. We created, gave more uh, responsibility and put the onus on the operators to say, you know, here, I know what I spent. So I'm showing you what I spent. So when they could have a report now that feeds into accounting. And so what does the modeling look like? I created a report that a marketing team could use, you know, use some drop downs to say, oh, it's this type of expense, this type of that, that automatically filled out the accrual sheet for accounting. So everything just looked very pretty for all the different teams. So it's looking at who are your stakeholders, right? So marketing was one of my stakeholders. Accounting was one of my stakeholders. I want both of them to be happy to be able to do their job as quickly and efficiently as possible. So modeling out tools, and in this case, everything was in Excel, but the tools were the different um, sheets that we created that they could all use. And we got a 20-day process down to a four-day, or even I think some business units down to two days. And then you have the rest of the month building, doing value-add activities. Okay, so 20-day something closed down to a few days. I got to dig into this more with you. Tell me more about these sheets you created. So if I understand correctly, you're, uh, you need to get the accruals from each of these teams on like Correct. What, we, what we spent in the previous month that hasn't yet, gotten, that hasn't yet hit the books, right? Is exactly. that what we're talking about? Okay. So yeah. you created a way for them to report to you on that through these Excel sheets for each department. Correct. So what there was a lot of <laughs> coordination that had to go into it, but what the sheets yeah. did essentially is that I had a sheet for every month and a dropdown of the different expense types. Now, there okay. are maybe five different accounts that they had to deal with in the chart of accounts, but for the operator, you know, they're, they're a marketing team, they're seeing 20 different types of expenses. You know, they're paying for, you know, advertisements. They're paying for um, conferences, but there's, you know, booth expenses versus partners versus PR or, you know, travel. Is, there's a, they track the difference between their flights and their limos and their, all the different pieces. And that's important to them because that's how mm-hmm. they see their budget. Now, accounting, you know, they don't really care about all the different nuances. They want to care about the accounts, you know, which accounts are getting hit. So, you know, when they're originally were being told, okay, they're spending on this and, and all these different pieces, things get lumped together. So what I did was, now we would use XLOOKUPs. I was using index match. By the way, for anyone using Excel, don't use VLOOKUP. It's very um, information heavy, uh, data heavy. So it will uh, slow down models and also it's not dynamic at all. So I use index match for most of those things, but XLOOKUP is really fast and great. So um, I, f- I finally took the time to learn how to use index match. And now you're telling me there's a better way? <laughs> XLOOKUP? We're going we're yeah, to go, go back to that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, essentially it was an XLOOKUP. I had like, uh, these are the different activities that the marketing team does. And they map to different accounts. And so, you know, the front end, the marketing team is filling out all their expenses and they're tracking it by vendor um, they're tracking it by those activities and expen- and when they expect to get paid, by the way, because they know the relationships with the vendors, right? They have, the, these yeah. are it's, dealing with people in the end of the day, right? Sometimes we forget that, you know, getting paid by vendors is like, oh, I have a relationship with this person. I know they're not going to pay for f- 50 days or I know they're going to pay tomorrow. 
So I, get, I put the onus on them. It's like, okay, so just let us know, you know, put in when you think we're going to get paid. Okay. So the difference now is in the old process, I was waiting as the marketing director to like get the report from accounting and then we'd have to go and like sort through all this stuff. You're, you're yeah. saying- So account, accounting closed, by the way. Yeah. I, I should say that accounting did close, but we spent the rest of the month to do fixes on the back. You know, we had to get rid yeah. of accruals, add accruals. And so we spent a lot of the month for fixing for the next month. And then by the time the next month came in, there were more, you know, there were more problems. So now I'm being pro, you're having, you're having me, the operator, the marketing person, be proactive yeah. and put in all that stuff as I'm spending it. Right. And, okay. you know, depending on the size of the company or the team, each of these uh, business units had like a, a director of operations you know, or someone who managed the budget and the spending. So we worked very closely with that, that person and they tracked all their expenses and what it did on the back end of the sheet. So I had a tab at the end of the sheet that said, you know, for accounting or you know, mm -hmm. whatever I called it. And they would email it at the month. I would say, okay, please send in your, you know, tracker, your expense tracker. So we call them and CC the accounting on it. And the accounting had the accrual sheet already filled. That's great. So they could go then match up what had already come through, like compare it to what was on this expense report essentially, or, uh, yeah. and, and then make the appropriate adjusting journal entries. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they were able to mark things as paid or unpaid um, and, retro, you know, change it retroactively, which would then flow through. And when I say retroactively, I mean, like, now it's, um, let's say it's March now, and then they their January thing just got paid. So they'll flip it, and that'll adjust the accrual. Um, because every month, there was a reaccrual of everything. All mm -hmm. the accruals had dropped, and then we had to reaccrue. So it, it made it for an easy process. Yeah, and it took, it was just as fast as, you know, sending an email <laughs> at that point. So what gave you the idea to do this? Like, you know. Um, I, I, hate, I was losing my mind spending all this time doing these non-value-add activities. Yeah. Um, spent, you know, when I first did FP, I joined the company and did FP&A, and I was like, okay, I, I don't understand the value I'm bringing. I feel like I'm just a, you know, custodian. You know, I went to the, the director of the group, the VP of the group, and I said, what, what value-add are we doing here? And he was telling me about all this value-add that we're giving. And I'm like, I don't see my job that way because... I'm just like looking through travel receipts and making sure that people are coded to the right department. This is not what our job really should be. So I try to automate it as quickly as much as possible. Well, and I imagine that the operators appreciated once, I mean, they probably, they probably didn't like having to do a little more work at first though, right? I oh, mean, it was less work. It was less work for them. Okay. How, yeah, because in so? the end of the day, they're spending half the month, you know, looking at their numbers that were wrong and trying to help me figure out what's going on. And they don't want to be spending their time doing that. Yeah. And so, you know, they're tracking their expenses anyway. They just weren't tracking it in the same place that the account, you know, accounting was getting it or in a way that oh, accounting made sense. So, right. Well, because they had to track yeah. it to make sure that they were staying on budget. Exactly. So they, they were, they were so doing it anyway. Everyone was doing the job, but it was just inefficient. All the information yeah. was, nothing was coordinated. So you connected what they were already doing to what accounting needed so that they could close the books faster. I get it. Yeah. Oh. I mean, and this is already many years ago, so I feel like it's okay to say it, but like we found, we saved within the first month of doing this, almost a million dollars of accrual, of things that were over accrued. Wow. And I cleaned up the balance sheet. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a really like, you could like point to the value right away uh. of, the, of the job. And besides the amount of time that was saved, there's like, like real costs that were saved. 
Well, so you automated like weeks of your job then. So yeah, what do you do with the free time now? That was, that was the fun part. So now, you know, I talk to the sales team and they're trying to, and the sales at WWE is um, media placements and talent placements, commercials, um, sponsorships for big events. So for example, Snickers, I think has sponsored WrestleMania for the past, I don't know how many years. So they have different salespeople and they have quotas and they want to know what their commission is going to be. So I created, a, it was a very complex commission structure depending on new business, international business, hitting, you know, going over the quota amount. And so it created these uh, pretty intense trackers that was able to read, you know, previous sales and know whether or not a, a business or a partner was new or somewhat renewed or, you know, all these different iterations of it also created these like pretty dynamic dashboards with Excel. So different teams could track their spend in different areas. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of different cool projects like that. Getting those KPIs set up. Yeah. So KPIs meaning key performance indicators. What yeah. were the most memorable KPIs at WWE? Uh, number of tables and chairs broken in an event. Uh, <laughs> number <laughs> so, of body slams. Yeah. I'm guessing it's not quite, right. not quite that. that. No, you know, unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't so um, into the business side of things. I wasn't really tied to the the talent, as we call it, the wrestlers or the events themselves. That was uh, someone else's um, position. But uh, being able to, uh, you know, I, I like the community team because they were doing a lot of really interesting activities. So community engagement was a really interesting KPI to try to figure out how to measure. Community engagement. So uh, what does that mean? So you're spe- the brand team has a, there's a community relations team. So it's essentially donations, right? And so you're engaging with the community. You're having these events that give, bring awareness to certain brands. And so there's brand awareness and how many eyes are seeing something. Okay. And sometimes there's sales associated, you know, where you're raising money. So raising money for? Uh, for the charitable. For charities. Okay, got it. And so then you yeah. track like how many people saw that campaign or, you know, how many. So help setting up um, dashboards for that. Exactly. Got it. Got it. What other kinds of KPIs are, do you, do you remember being important? At WWE, well, data analytics, a lot, a lot of it was spend related, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, tracking different vendors, how often they're being used. I remember there was a looking at the cloud spend and trying to get an understanding of cloud spend. So there were a few months where the cloud spend started ballooning. And so I had to dig, I dug, dug into it and try to understand what the, what's going on there. And uh, looking at uh, Amazon uh, web services and understanding the different products they have and how those different products price, you know, you're learning about like um, E2 instance, uh, I think they call it. Yeah. Are you talking for the streaming, like streaming the shows and, and all the web stuff that's going so on? So they had, um, yeah, so they had a network at the time, which I think was subsequently sold to Peacock. But they had the WW network was another streaming service that you could, or app you can get. And so there was a lot of this cloud spend. And so E2, mm. I believe it's called, um, it's probably someone will correct me on that, but are there server instances that you have on Amazon Web Services? And I looked up best practices, and so you can actually turn them off and only run them like one hour a day instead of having them on twenty four seven. So being able to like put, get into those types of uh, weeds and say, okay, let's help uh, you know get more efficient spend. When you're dealing with the non business side of things, it's very cre- you have to be a little more creative in what KPIs to measure to really understand the value of the investments because right. um, it's efficiency, it's you know, time spent on activities, and it's hard. It's more subjective. 
Yeah, and you're trying to well, it's, you know, minimize spend and you know control spend, uh, or help exactly. help help people control spend. Like, you know, how do yeah, like how do we not use a ridiculous amount of cloud compute so that we don't you know pay out the nose for that to Amazon or, or all that? I suppose, yeah, that's it's more it's more behind the scenes, right? Like all that stuff that that needs to happen to you know make sure there is a profit at the end of the day. Exactly. And there's so many moving parts, especially when you have larger organizations. I mean, that's why you have the finance team. It's not mm-hmm. one person. It's a, I think we had over 10 people at the time. Um, it's a pretty large organization. And people dealing with the business. And then you had a bunch of people who were just dealt with consolidation full-time. This episode of the Earmark Podcast is sponsored by Liveflow. Did you hear the news? Liveflow just launched a new consolidation product. Liveflow power user Beth Melcher of MoneyFit said that Liveflow's consolidation is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week and eliminates the use of formulas. Liveflow's automated multi-entity consolidation is simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching charts of accounts from multiple QuickBooks online companies into one standardized report. Once it's set up, Liveflow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data across entities. Liveflow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies. And the possibilities don't stop there. Liveflow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. To stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 25% off your first three months, be one of the first 10 listeners to head over to earmarkcpe.promo slash liveflow. That is earmarkcpe.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. So that's where you really, it sounds like, honed your skills as an FP&A manager. And then yeah. you uh, you spent a couple of years, so it looks like you know a few years at WWE, and then you went off on your own. Um, and yeah. now you're doing... Now you're so now you're running FP&A for startups for your clients. What's the difference uh, for you in those roles where you were, you know, at WWE and now managing FP&A or running FP&A? Oh, that's a great question. So I would say that I have two different types of projects that I engage now. So either running FP&A or you know helping people set up their their team. So having that experience, that corporate experience, really gave me the nuance of what does it mean to be on a team. And someone says, oh, I'll get back to that in a week. You know, working at KPMG, it's like, okay, someone gives you an ask. They're expecting it back that day. It doesn't matter if they asked you at 8 p.m., <laughs> you know. And so the the corporate lifestyle of a strategy consultant versus going into corporate where people are, it's like a nine-to-five job. And it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm leaving in a half hour, so maybe we'll talk next week. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, what's going on? What do you mean next week? <laughs> uh, it was, it's a little bit of a culture shock. But that perspective is really important because I think that's how most companies uh, work. And, and I think for good reason. I mean, it's not healthy to do uh, <laughs> the, uh, the big four lifestyle in a long term. I mean, there's a lot of benefit. I mean, I learned a lot yeah. um, and I'm not disparaging it, but I think there, it's not for everyone. Uh, well, and that's so why only one, in, 1% of the people who go in stay for life, right? So exactly. It's yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes you want, you think about how many, um, years of life uh, kind of scraped off by doing it, but I don't like to think about that too much. Well, 
I, I think that's the the best argument I've heard for going the big four path and just working your butt off is that you get double the experience in terms of years, right? So if you're there for two or three years, you're really there for like five to 10. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, I, I, it's not double, it's more. I, I, yeah. It's the amount of experience I got. Um, I could jump into any industry now, whether energy, finance, life sciences, health tech, media, SaaS companies. I, and I know the business models because I've worked with big players in each of those fields and could talk to the detail of it and understand the business models, which is how I'm able to do my job today. Is you know, today I'm talking to a company that is setting up elect, you know, char- electric charging stations across Europe, or another is a SaaS company or a recruitment agency, and each has a different business model. But I feel comfortable in each one because of the experience I had at KPMG. Mm. Wide exposure to a lot of different types of businesses, industries. Yeah, hard to get yeah. hard to get anywhere else, right? Yeah. So, so back That's to the it. question, right? How's being head yeah, of FPNA? How is being head of FPNA different for you? So, first of all, is the scale of the companies. I tend to be working right now with earlier stage startups. So there is not much of infrastructure that's there, or if there is infrastructure, it was sometimes just put together pretty quickly. So what we could talk about is usually goals. You know, I don't, I can't go into a company and say, "Here is your FPNA function." It's like, uh, you know, standard product. Take it. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Every company has a different goal. Someone wants the IPO. Someone wants to have an exit. Someone wants to. Uh, I mean, get acquired by a specific company, or maybe it's just a next capital raise. And so that's why I have that transaction focus, because we have that conversation and say, okay, what is your goal with this? You know, what are you trying to get at? And it's, you have different approaches for each of these companies. Now, the basics of it, you will have, be, you have to have clear insight into what you're spending and, and where your spend is going to go. But the KPIs that you set up after that will differ. So first have those conversations and it's very high level, it's strategic and then go into the model building and setting up the processes. Whenever you build a model, you, oh, the first question I ask is, what is the output? And people are say, well, I want to look at this KPI, this KPI, this KPI. And I'm like, no, no, who's looking at those KPIs? Is it for you? Is it for an operator in the company? Is it for the board? Um, is it for potential investors? Because each one needs something else and is going to define the KPI differently. I think one of the biggest uh, things today, especially in the SaaS world, is ARR, right? Everyone's talking about ARR. They want a recurring revenue model. There, I forgot which company put this out, but there was a, sh- uh, a document with a thousand different definitions, and literally a thousand different definitions for ARR. Yeah, I mean, every, it, there's a, you know, there's a general what you know what's going on recurring revenue, but how you're defining it is so vastly different. And uh, it's crazy to me that <laughs> FASB, like that, we don't have accounting standards for SaaS metrics. That like it, it blew my mind when I, I discovered this that. The only ratio that the Financial Accounting Standards Board has ever defined in the United States is EPS. Did you know that? It's the only I one. Know, I did not know that. Yeah. Everything else is up to the discretion of the business as to how they define it. And so we have widely different, you know, like non-GAAP metrics and calculations for them. And I th- like the margin calculations are even weirder, right? Where... Um, like if you're calculating LTV, right, lifetime value of a customer, some just take the ARR and multiply it by the you know average number of years that a customer stays, and that they call that their LTV. But some deduct their uh, cogs from LTV, right? So, they only consider uh, the contribution you know, margin. 
Yeah. Sorry, it's, go ahead. Actually, one of the ideas, I think I heard it on your podcast, on the cloud accounting podcast, um, talking about, I mean, the, the P&L structure is really antiquated to deal with yeah. the modern business. You know, COGS, you don't really have COGS in SaaS companies. You know, it's, it's essentially a 100% margin business. So what's the point of having a gross margin line? At least, you know, you should have a gross margin line because that's how we think about it. But the, the, all the terms are upside down, right? We're dealing with recurring revenue, we're talking about customer acquisition costs. I think yeah. uh, you guys mentioned, you know, these things are really assets, like a cohort of, of customers. It's really an asset that you're, you're realizing its value over time, especially the mature SaaS companies. They know exactly how much money they're getting from these cohorts over time. And, for, and exactly how long we're getting it. For me, the big example that like shows just how wrong accounting standards are when it comes to subscription businesses was Netflix. Because when Netflix dropped, it plummeted. I can't remember, was it was a year or two years ago at this point. All their financials looked great. All the reported earnings numbers and everything looked great. The only thing that changed was their subscriber number plummeted. And then everybody sold. And I thought that's so crazy that why don't we have mandated reporting on like numbers of sub subscribers for subscription businesses and LTV because that's what investors really care about. Like that's what I care about as a Netflix investor is how many customers they have and what's their churn and what's their right. you know what's their ARR or their you know average ticket or you know that sort of thing. That's that's how you can see that's the asset, right? That but it's not on the balance sheet. There's no the, the biggest asset of, of Netflix and every other subscription business is not on the balance sheet. I agree. It's um, the, the whole business model. Yeah, just, it, you know, and what are you going to do with COGS, right? So you're talking about yeah. they should deduct COGS from the ARR. What, what is COGS? Is their hosting cost? That thing cents. I, I think to normally it, it's their, yeah, it's the hosting. Like if you does AWS, right, then, you know, but right. it's, it can be. That's the only thing that's really traditionally um, yeah. COGS. But, you know, some people will put customer support. Because you know you'll have to increase your customer support. Um, the more customers you have, um, but there's no standard. I think is the is the thing. Yeah, exactly. There's no standard, but also it makes less sense to define gross margin when you have no standard. Yeah, right. What, so what do you, that's why SaaS metrics is a, its own category of metrics and of KPIs. So everybody wants to create forecasts and budgets and, and financial models, but it's really hard. I had a job, my, my last gig, my last full-time employment was as the uh, marketing director for an FP&A platform. And I attempted to learn how to do it in Excel and, and in the software. And even with software, putting Rails on it, it was hard. It's really hard. How did you learn how to build financial models? Do you have advice for folks who want to get into it as to how to start? Because we all have Excel on our computers, but it's just... It's this blank slate. It's like having this totally blank canvas, and and now I want to learn how to make an oil painting. How do I get there? Uh, so many answers to that question. So, first of all, we're entering the stage where there are these tools like Giraffe and others. I, I worked with a company called Causal, and I still do a lot of client work on Causal, which is another uh, FP&A platform. It's really a financial modeling platform. That could be used by any team. I like to think of it as, you know, Excel, like you just said, is this, this clean, it's a clean slate. And you could do anything on Excel, right? You could do project management on it. You could build your financial models on it. You could do your shopping list on it. Uh, but it's not really optimized for any specific thing. It's very good for a lot of these things. 
um, and I use it still for most of my projects, but it's not optimized for it. You know, people now use like a monday.com for project management. Everything in monday.com can be done in Excel. It's just way more optimized. Same thing with like building models. I, like I would use causal because it's optimized for building financial models. So someone's serious about financial modeling, look at the different tools that are available, see what's out there, and that could also help. But as far as the practical steps, you know, most of us are going to be using Excel. Let's be, we'll be honest for now. Mm-hmm. Um, start with your outputs. What are you trying to get at? Then once you have that defined, go back to your inputs. What information do you have to feed this? One of the biggest problems you have when we come to financial modeling is either thinking too granular or too abstract. Someone will have a revenue uh, forecast that's growing 2%. Actually, um, funny, I was once, one of my uh, company I worked with a few years ago was a crypto company. It was one of these uh, exchanges and their entire model was a 2% growth. When I say their entire model is 2% growth, it was revenue was 2% growth. All the operating expenses were 2% growth. Even the Bitcoin to USD exchange rate was a 2% growth. Um, I just decided like we're going to, yeah, we're just going to get, I mean, that's, that's the laziest form of modeling, right? Is just a static growth rate. Right. And, and the problem with it, you know, sometimes 2% growth is the way to do it, but when you have a revenue model and a forecast model, right. And you're doing a 2% growth on your revenue and then you put your actuals into it, let's say, and you fill the actuals. Now you hit your target or you missed your target. You overshot, you undershot. Why? You have no idea. You just know that 2% wasn't hit. And that doesn't help you because what your output really should be is, you know, show your full sales motion. So let's say a very typical out-of-the-box SaaS company. You start with marketing spend. Marketing spend generates leads. Leads then convert to uh, qualified leads that convert into customers, right? And customers have an ARR, like let's say with ACV, which is an average um, contract value. And that will give you your ARR and then you divide that by 12 and that's your MRR, which is your revenue in that month, uh, monthly recurring revenue. Now, I, if I build a model like that, I build not only how much marketing spend I have, I have a cost per, per lead. So everything's converting, you know, I spend $100 per every lead that I get. And then those leads then eventually convert into a qualified lead. But there's actually a time component, right? So I might delay it for a month or two, and mm. depending on the size of the company. If you're doing B2B, there's, you know, it could be a six-month sales cycle. And so now you have this thing starting with an activity, which is your marketing spend, and which we know then converts. You know, so the conversion to leads has to do with marketing and the quality of your marketing. Leads converting to qualified leads, that's your SDR team, right? Then the qualified leads converting into customers, that's your sales team. And then this, the sales turning into and customers and their ACV, that's all part of your sales team. So now when I hit my revenue, I also have the KPIs pulling in, hopefully. I'm measuring from like my uh, CRM, or like it's a HubSpot, HubSpot or whatever it is. I know how many leads came in. I know when I spent that marketing spend. I know when they converted to in my funnel. And if I have my whole funnel defined, now I could say, okay, we have fewer customers this month, which is a miss, but we are actually our revenue is higher than expected because our ACVs were higher than expected. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the marketing spend was more efficient than we thought, but, you know, someone in SDR really uh, dropped the ball. And now you can make business decisions. 
based off of these actuals that are coming in. And that's the point of the model. The point of the model right. is to have the level of granularity to make business decisions that drive value for your company. Go in the opposite direction, you have too, too detailed, then you can't, like, you're not measuring things that are too detailed. Like, you're not, you're not measuring the age of your customers. Let's say you're, oh, I sold to someone on the sales team who was 24 years old versus a 50-year-old versus a 40-year-old. You're probably not capturing that information. And what value does that <laughs> give you? And I don't know why you want that. <laughs> uh, so there's a fine balance between overly granular and mm-hmm. overly abstract. But the key is that you've connected something that's happening in the business, something controllable, which is how much money did we spend on marketing? You know, how many leads did we get? How many calls did we make? All that stuff. And you're connecting it to that output, which is the financial information. And so then you can right. actually see like what what led to that, as opposed to just saying we 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 missed this arbitrary goal. So I had a, had a customer or client who wanted to build a platform and they had no marketing spend. I was like, so how are you going to get leads? And he's like, oh, it's all referrals. And I was like, okay, so let's say the referrals don't come in. What can you do? Can you do anything or any levers for you to pull to increase the number of customers or number of people on the platform? He's like, no, it's not, it's not going to be a problem because they'll come in. I'm like, okay, let's say it's not. <laughs> um, or, you know, the opposite, like, um, you know, let, let's say one month there's a lot of referrals. What did you do to get all those referrals in? He's like, we didn't do anything. It's just refer. Yeah, there's those conversations. Right. Like, well, maybe we had an event, and I was like, ah, an event. Okay, that's marketing spend. You generated leads. Yep. Right. Or, that's something you just, could measure. And if you don't, yeah, even just asking for referrals, right? Yeah. Like that's an activity. Just right, and it's hours that you're spending. Yeah. Right. And maybe you're not capturing that, so you shouldn't be modeling. But maybe that's not the best business approach. <laughs> it's actually interesting for accounting firms, you know you don't want to do marketing spend a lot of times. If you have a good accounting firm, it's all referrals. And it's all about, you know, you know, it's like the opposite of SEO. I think I, maybe you guys mentioned this once, um, where your site is to show that you're legitimate, but you're not trying to get generate new leads. So what's, right. the, what's the business model to get higher ACV? So that's an interesting question. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, I think most accounting firms don't do this kind of modeling. And so they really don't know and therefore, their ACV is lower than it should be a lot of the time because yeah. they're not going out and asking their existing customers, hey, do you need help with this? We offer this as well. And, and most of the time, the customers have no clue that the firm does that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's yeah. where like a, a model that, like even if your only source of new business is referrals or like expanding existing customers, you could build that out really well in a model and understand it better. So... That's what I loved about learning about financial modeling is that it, it to me, it, it really connects what I learned how to do as an accountant, which is actuals, to what we want to achieve as a business, which is that, that forecast, right, or that, that goal at the end of the day. And in, um, unfortunately, I feel like it's been, I mean, this is what my hope with this software now is that it's bringing down the cost of modeling and especially the whole right. like updating of the model, right? Because that's always been the part that's really challenging is once you build the model, actually like updating it and keeping it valid and then comparing it to your actuals is a lot of times really hard. Right. That's, that's where I think these new tools really excel is, you know, I think you still usually need help building the models because, again, I think hopefully, if hopefully the point came across that these things really shouldn't be out of the box. They should be really 
you know, your strategic approach or business approach to the market quantified. And every company is a little different. You know, you have like templates, right? Like a SaaS, you know, SaaS business model is going to be generally the same thing, but you know, timing is going to be different. The the definitions of the sales funnel, of the sales motion, it can be different. There's different stops along the way. So once you have your um, your model defined and making sure that you actually are capturing the actuals to feed into the model, right? Those mm-hmm. non-financial and financial KPIs. And the financial KPIs usually are coming from the accounting uh, system. So like, I never go more granular than the chart of accounts. Well, if, they, if the customer says, oh, I really want to capture the level of detail, it's like, well, does your chart of accounts go to that level of detail? It's like, no. It's like, well, maybe we should start building that out in your chart of accounts. And that's how you start capturing it. Once you connect that, then the new tools really, if they're integrated well, feed into the model and you'll have those actuals versus your forecast or budget um, done right away. And there's no, you know, guesswork um, trying to get that set up. Always need some checks because even with the new stuff, uh, if you have a new chart of it, if you have a new account that comes in, it's probably not linked up to your model yet. So that's a a big pitfall uh, where, why things won't reconcile, but um, yeah, it really helps with the process. What are the biggest mistakes you see in financial models? Uh, with Excel, I mean, wrong cell references. It's it's really that simple. Sometimes you'll have math mistakes. You know, um, people grossing up um, ratios the wrong way. So, uh, oh, like uh, someone saying, "Well, I want my gross margin to be twenty five percent," and so they'll divide the cost by one plus the gro- the gross margin, or that they want. And I was like, "That's not exactly how you do that. That's that doesn't really mm-hmm. work." Um, or, oh, another big one that really bothers me, <laughs> this is a pet peeve, is um, taking averages of percents of different bases when people <laughs> do math on percentages. Um, so percentages are ratios themselves. And if they have different bases, you can't average them out. It doesn't work or you can't add them together. You have to make sure you're dealing with the same base. So that's where the the weighted average really comes in handy. Interesting. Yeah. So, it's stuff that, that we kind of like don't think about too deeply and then we build an entire model based on it and it turns out that it's yeah the, the math's wrong right yeah like gross yeah. margin right you can't average out your gross margin percent over the last three months to find out your average gross margin of the quarter don't do that because each month has a different base different revenue mm-hmm. so what you need yeah. to do is add up all the revenue and then add up all the expenses and do the ratio and then that, calculate it to be clear yeah that's that's a good that's that's great that's like uh, something I probably wouldn't have thought of, and I'd, I'd be I'd be making that mistake myself. What's your favorite type of business to model out? Oh, um, do you have a favorite financial model you've built? You don't have to name model. you don't have to name the company, no. but you know, like that, like like what kind of businesses? Because there's so many different you know businesses, right? I mean, the the common one that we see yeah, is like a lot of SaaS, right? There's a lot of SaaS out there. But, yeah, so I I mean I like SaaS because. Like I do a lot of it, and so I feel very, you know, there's a certain level of confidence that comes to it. I always like the challenge of, you know, new company. I like, you know, energy models are really interesting because of the 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 business is very different. It has to do with like proving to regulators you could charge more. It's a very different type of business. Um, really, I wouldn't say it's my favorite type of. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of like what an electric company can charge more for is if they prove like, oh, I'm going to invest in renewable energies. So actually. Years ago, I worked for one of the one of my clients 
was a large electric company in the U.S. And they, when the clean power plan came out, um, they had to deploy gigawatts of renewable energy. And so I was trying to figure out which sites to deploy the renewable energy, which was most efficient, and then also what can be the best argument towards the regulators to be able to charge more for. Because the regulators set the price. So if you're making that CapEx investment, you have to make the investment and then tell them, like, we think that you should let us increase the price this much to pay for it. Uh, Ah, that's that's so backwards to how, like, businesses normally operate. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, when you go into specific industries, like um, healthcare and energy, where government is involved, you have um, the incentives change. Uh, and what you're trying to maximize is different. And so you always want to try to make sure it works out well. But um, yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite type of model. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a great question. I like I like models where I did something cool, like a formula that works out really well. That I, I, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't sure how, how it would work out. Um, Do you have an example you could share with us? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, I just, for with DemoStack, I was building out a deferred revenue schedule based off of transaction data. And I was trying to figure out how to do it. And what I did was I created a formula that took a ratio of how many months. So first of all, you have, you have billing cycles, right? So some companies are on a annual billing cycle, some are semi-annual, some are quarterly. So that's a variable. So I had to take like the contract value and say, when's the contract ending? And then figure out based off the variable of what their billing cycle is, you know, a ratio that would divide up, you know, how many months are left until the next billing cycle to come up with a deferred revenue piece. And so there was some, I had to figure out these fractions that based off of an end date to say, mm-hmm. okay, well, if this is a, you know, March and the end date's in a December, then it only has to be nine twelfths, but it's not really nine twelfths. It's really exactly, it depends on if it's a sixth or a third or 12. Yeah. And so it worked out. It, it was pretty cool. That's cool. That sounds a lot better than the way I did it, which was line by line manually. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I don't I'm, know how long that would take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the client I was doing it for, it was they didn't have that many customers, but uh, at the time. But then it quickly started to get out of control, so I could see like automating it, like you're talking about, would be extremely valuable. Yeah, and now to update this, all you need to do is copy and paste the transaction in uh, data into the file, and then I have a check that says, "Do you have enough rows?" There was a way to do a dynamic rows, but um, it would take up too much data and slow down the model. So mm-hmm. I did manual add rows. So I had to check said, please add two more rows. I wrote the words, please add two more rows <laughs> in the model. Um, yeah. Because you know, I think aesthetics in a model is also important because if you're looking at this stuff all day, you don't want your eyes to glaze over with numbers. So I add colors, I add borders. So you're, you can visually see things without having to read it. That's really important because it may make sense to you as somebody who built the model, but the question is, can somebody come in and understand it who didn't build it? And normally that's like not possible. And that's one of the big limitations of Excel for modeling is like, nobody can figure out how to use it except the person who built it. Right. So I built my uh, my models in a specific way, especially in Excel. So any input tab, I have an I in front of it. Any calculation tab, I put a C in front of it. Any output tab, I put an O. It's actually uh, my mentor, uh, George Allen, who is, I think, now a partner in KPMG, taught me how to do these models like this. And there's also an assumptions tab and a dashboard. So I put all my inputs. You know, I never, I never really like to hard code any numbers into a formula. I always do everything variable-based or input-based. 
And so you have a dashboard with all your inputs and I color code it so you know what's an input versus a calculation. And then you have your charts next to those inputs. So you can just change everything on a dashboard. You know, why go into the, you know, look under the hood and see what's going on if, you, if you're just using it to, you know, stress test multiple scenarios, you know, everything's in the front. Do you have any advice for listeners who love what they're hearing and want to do what you do? Oh, man. I just, really just had a conversation about this uh, over coffee right before the recording. I think there are a number of resources out there. I, I need to, I could maybe hopefully maybe I can follow up with you and, and so you could, we could provide it. You know, I think finding a mentor for me was the mm-hmm. biggest thing. There's uh, YouTube is really great. <laughs> Gotta say, really, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Any favorite channels? YouTube it just has uh, on Excel, not not specifically offhand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I use um. There's a website called ExcelJet.net. That's whenever I have those formula questions, I go there, and they usually have very good descriptions and videos uh, on that. But it's a good question. You know, I always wanted to put out like a, an Excel training course and actually even a causal training course because I think it's such an important thing for at least, you know, even the next generation of, you know, college, college kids or people who are just starting out their careers to really understand. It's not just financial modeling because it's really it's strategic finance. That's the way I like to think about it. And maybe I'm just adding fancy words to something that's simple, but I really think I, I do believe it because it's not just putting numbers on a sheet because when you just put, put numbers on a sheet, you'll do what I did at the beginning of my career, which is hand over the model. And they say, why am I making a billion dollars a month? That makes no sense. And I'm like, well, that's the formula. And they're like, well, you have to do the sense check. You know, you can't yeah. just like be a monkey with the numbers. You got to really think about what you're doing. Um, so, you know, the advice I have really is start with your outputs, then look at your inputs, and then you could connect the dots between the two hmm. and everything that you build out should have a be able to be actionable you know you, you don't want to, you're not building out the model just to have numbers on a sheet some people love data and not all you know too much data is a is a type of bias right and that you know and then also take that step back always look at the big picture what do you what is the goal here what are the numbers do these numbers really make sense am i really spending that much on this item am i you know does it make sense that if i'm investing this amount that i'm only getting that amount of revenue those are the the moments where I think really differentiates someone who's good and great at, at this. Not saying that I'm one or the other. <laughs> All right. It's, it seems like you've done pretty well and you've got a great career ahead of you. And so I'm, I'm sure I appreciate uh, that advice. I have a fantasy of like, if I wasn't doing podcasting and, and interviews, I'd be, you know, learning this kind of stuff because I've always loved systems. And I, that's why I got into accounting systems and cloud-based uh, systems and APIs and connecting them and automating the flow of data, right? And to me, this is that same thing. It's the same feeling, but on the strategic forecasting, future-looking side of things. And so, you know, I can nerd out with you all day long, I feel like, on Excel formulas and and how do you how do you tackle that challenge of importing a bunch of transactional data and just automating a schedule, right? Like that, that's the sort of thing where you might puzzle it out for hours and hours or days even, and and then you've saved yourself hours and hours or days over and over again, right? That's a good feeling, I imagine, when it works. Yeah. One of my people ask me, like, what's your favorite moment in college? 
like my, my nerd, my, I remember I had a professor who said, your favorite moment in college will be when you get your balance sheet to balance in your forecast. And like you, you hear that at the beginning of the semester, you have no idea what you're talking about. After like pouring all those hours and the sweat and tears into the, the financial model and yeah. then you have to, nothing's balancing and all you have to do is press F9 and it refreshes and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, my balance sheet balanced in the forecast. I remember jumping up and I was like, yeah, actually it became one of those like yeah. highlight moments in my college. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I also had fun in college. Don't worry. <laughs> you know what? Uh, just like anime, you know, has become part of our pop culture. Maybe someday financial modeling will become part of the mainstream culture. I, I, I think it's just a few years away at this point. Maybe another generation will get there. Yeah, I, you know, I think I agreed with you most of everything we spoke about. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going <laughs> to. Well, Ariel, it has been so. Wonderful speaking with you and learning from you. Uh, what kind of? I mean, you're on, you're 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 consulting now. So, like, yeah. What what sort of clients are are you taking on? Customers, clients? Are you looking to work with certain types of businesses or accounting firms? Uh, yeah. What, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'm looking for. Um, first of all, anyone who wants to is very junior in their career, um, I'm looking to hire people to train. Uh, thinking about also doing uh, some training uh, content around that, which I guess we could talk about at some point. But the I, the clients that I'm looking for are people who are looking to do some sort of transaction in the near not so distant future. So it could be one or two years away, but don't really know how to position themselves strategic and financially to do that. So you know, if you're looking to do a capital raise coming up in a few years or in the, the next few months, or you're looking to do an exit of some sort, whether it's by acquisition or IPO, maybe um, my partners are, have the experience to help position you and get you, you know, confident to get to that point. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you and learn more? So my website hopefully is going live soon. <laughs> this uh, either you know this week or next. Um, it's at raftelstrategy.com, and you can reach me at my email, which is Ariel A R I E L at Raftel Strategy, which is R-A-F-T-E-L strategy.com. Ariel, thanks so much for your time today. Great having you on the podcast and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's been really great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com. Earmark CPE.